Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast, where we discuss all things GRC. And we all know, you know, everyone in that meeting was very passionate about customer outcomes. So no one disputes that that customers should be should have remediation offered to them, and that it should be done in such a way as to reduce um, the harm that has come to them through these things. But um, I think that in some parts, and and you know, our sympathy is with ASIC because they need to also listen to the consumer advocacy groups and everybody who's coming on board with this. We've still got the rollout of the emotional response to the Royal Commission as well. Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast. My name is Kwame Slusher. I'm the editor of the GRC Institute. And today we have our CEO at the GRC Institute, Naomi Burley. Hi, Naomi. And happy International Women's Day. Thanks, Kwame. And happy International Women's Day to all our uh, female members who are outnumbering the male members at the moment. So, um, So... couple of things to catch up on um, that we have we've done this is about us um, this particular podcast um, we recently did a submission on the CP350 and consumer remediation um, we also recently had an alumni group looking I think an update on the three lines of accountability paper the initial one I think was released on the first day of the conference last year officially yeah. yes uh, so let's start with the, the submission the CP350 um, yes. I guess just a very general outline of what happened there and the process of submitting and how that all went down. Yeah, well, look, this one was brought to our attention, as you know, and as some of our members know, but not all of them know, so it's probably worth saying, we run a very lean team. So having the um, ability and the resources to do to respond to every consultation paper, it's not something that we can we can always do. Um and so in this instance, we were asked to by um, a few members because they also interact with other associations who quite often put in submissions because they have dedicated resources for it. And they said this was something that hadn't really been flagged in some of those other associations. And they had a concern that um, no one was going to respond with a with very practical advice to ASIC on this one. So we took that on board and um, scheduled a workshop with our members, mainly to gather all that feedback in one spot so that we could respond quite quickly. And thankfully, um, we had two really great uh, speakers at that event to give a bit of a history of this one, because this one's a little bit unusual in that it's had two stages already. We're hoping it's going to go to at least another stage because it's not fully cooked yet, in our opinion, um, as a piece of regulatory guidance. Um, but it's it's gone through a few iterations uh, so far. So it was really important for our members to meet there. And it was, a, it was um, a fabulous group that gave their input on that. So thank you very much to those members who had the time and had put in the prep to come along and, and give their thoughts on this one because it's a very wide-ranging consultation paper. So it's remediation, um, which is a big and complex piece in itself. But this regulatory guidance is trying to answer um, a lot of scenarios across a huge variety of financial products and where a consumer may, um, you know, be charged a $5 fee that they shouldn't be charged through to really serious uh, monetary losses that they shouldn't have suffered. So this isn't around, you know, when they just invest poorly and make poor decisions 
off their own bat. This is around where the the organisation has somehow been involved in that process and has to take responsibility for that. Um, and we all know, you know, everyone in that meeting was very passionate about customer outcomes. So no one disputes that that customers should be should have remediation offered to them and that it should be done in such a way as to reduce um, the harm that has come to them through these things. But um, I think that in some parts, and, and, you know, our sympathy is with ASIC because they need to also listen to the consumer advocacy groups and everybody who's coming on board with this. We've still got the rollout of the emotional response to the Royal Commission as well. And I think that's all rolled into this. So it's one of those, one of those regulatory guides that is, um, going to be trying to please everybody and will please absolutely zero people. Um, and so I, I think that that came through. So there's some things going through where, you know, $20 is, in, is considered too, um, high a threshold for compensation and that we should be going to if someone, if someone suffered a $5 loss, uh, which means that, you know, this will increase the volumes because little mistakes can happen and they shouldn't happen. And in the perfect world, they wouldn't happen, but they do happen and the problem we have in, in this process and when you're combining such complex ideas is that um, coming up with a perfect world solution to it in a regulatory guide is going to be really nigh on impossible. Um, so we had some really interesting feedback on that and I think that this is a really important space for members to watch from. I won't sort of go into the detail. The submission is available. It's on the um, professional development or in the news email, one of those two, both of which yeah. Yeah. obviously be opened <laughs> and read. Um but I think that especially if this does go to another phase, and I'm really hoping it does, um, despite the deadlines that ASIC may have around this, uh, that we can get even more input from members because the, the key, the key takeaways from me around this is the sensitivity thresholds, increasing the volume of the remediation, um, without, uh, organisations being able to recruit the bodies that they would need to have to execute all these remediations if you bring a whole lot of those others into scope, which, again, doesn't mean to say that um, that individuals shouldn't be compensated for losses that have been incurred, but it just is a really difficult thing to do on a very tight timetable and with the inability for an organisation to set their own priorities if, if this guidance is to be taken as read at the current time. So you, you can't even prioritise your resources around the ones where the most harm has been done. They're all treated equally. So I think, uh, I think a few sort of pragmatic, um, steps need to be added into this, into this process for people. So yes, I invite everyone to have a read of what we put in. This is, you know, this is very much w what the members were saying on the day. Um, and to participate in any future submissions, we are going to be inviting people to participate in a similar workshop around, uh, the consultations with Austrac on IFTIS. Um, and, and that really helps us guide, uh, 
helping to try and provide a pragmatic solution back to the regulator rather than just sort of doing a verbal dump of this is this is rubbish you need to rethink it we would like to go to them with with a practical solution to achieving the objective they're trying to achieve which is to reduce customer harm in this instance um, all of our members are very cognizant of that fact and have been working in a variety of organisations that have tried to do this in a variety of ways. So they have a lot of learnings they can bring to this process um, and that's why we think ASIC should listen to them as well. <laughs> sure, sure. And to preempt that discussion on FTs, um, I will share some links to the guidance that Australia has provided in the podcast notes. Yep. Uh, so the next uh, line business for the podcast is talking about our alumni group and the work that they've been doing on the three lines of accountability. And as we, as I started saying at the beginning of this podcast, released the, the first version of the paper um, at the first day of the conference. And I hope you can't hear the sirens to the recording, but if you can, it's, it's just underlining the urgency and importance of this topic. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You paid them a lot of money to come out on a rainy day to make that noise. Exactly. Um, yeah, look, the three lines of accountability is actually, and I don't want to correct you, but um, it's actually been a, a long cooking process. Annette first wrote a paper for our Compliance and Regulatory Journal uh, a while ago, and it took us a while to publish it, um, around role clarity and shifting that thinking around the three lines of defence. And um, it's a it's an excellent paper and, and I highly recommend it to anyone if you haven't read the original paper because it was concentrating on that aspect of getting really clear what is it you're doing in line two versus what line one does versus line three because the lines get blurred all the time and then everybody sort of points fingers and wonders what everyone else is doing. Um, that continues to be a perennial problem. Um, and the net sort of net circled back onto that one because she's seen it in so many organisations, still people not getting it right, but that it's, it is, it is still quite a good model to use if it's deployed well. And that's when we came, uh, workshopped with the alumni group the first round. So that one that was released at the conference. So that's the first paper that was workshopped with alumni. Yes. Um, and then what, came out of those discussions was that it needs some other bits and pieces around it. So it's all very well to have a paper, but no director is going to read that paper. If you want something to hand off to somebody in your organisations where you explain to them why there should be some refinements performed on your three lines model that you have operating, um, not a restructure, just some refinements around it, uh, they're not going to read that whole paper. They want a one-pager and you need those resources to give to them. Or uh, what what arose is that that's that's great for the bigger sized organisations that have internal audit and have distinct lines. What about when you're in a smaller organisation and you feel like half your role is doing some some stuff for for line one and on behalf of line one, but also being line two? Or what if you don't have internal audit? So we're going to come up with uh, some pieces of work around that, and that was the big takeaway last year. So. For this year, we're going to have quarterly meetings like this to produce a, to produce four pieces of work, hopefully. Um, that might be aiming a bit high, but three at a minimum. Uh, that support the three lines work and answer those unanswered questions and, and add some clarity to, to our thinking around uh, how it might operate in practice. So the first uh, workshop that we ran the other week was really to try and... Um, do a little bit of goal panning on this one and find out what actually 
comes to the surface. What are the highest priorities and biggest needs for people at the moment? And and funnily enough, a lot of it intersects with a lot of the other work we have planned for this, this year as well. We want to do a whole piece of work around assurance and improving assurance models for second line. But that came up that came up as a as a, a potential piece of work for this is getting some clarity around what assurance work line one does versus line two versus line three because they're very distinct pieces of work um, and making sure that there isn't doubling up because that's that's the frustration especially for a lot of line one they can't see why line two exists if they're doing all this stuff and they don't see that what you're doing is adding any value or adding any difference and then we come back full circle to that problem that compliance has all the time what's your value add um you know so you've gone and empowered them and then they're like teenagers who think they can do everything themselves <laughs> and get themselves everywhere but really should they be just should they be alone driving that car kind of thing you know they don't see the need for you you understand what your need is but nobody else in the business gets it yeah. so you've got to be really careful around that piece um there were a few other um uh, other really interesting comments that came out that around culture and ownership um and and conflicts and independence so some practical uh, things that we could support as well for organisations um, around ensuring that there is as much independence as is possible when you're still working for the organisation, obviously, and how to sort out your conflicts. Um, one of the practice notes we'd like to also have a little look at is information management, which is also the integration of data, the intersection with privacy, who's got what information, um, who's got the data expertise, does line line two compliance function need the data expertise all themselves? Can they work with another area of business and not set up a conflict? So all those little practical bits and pieces because um, that data and data analysis and potential for AI is all dependent on a whole lot of organisational interdependencies as well. Um, and uh, perhaps a model for when you have to outsource some of those functions perhaps a model for where you have to outsource your line two function, um, which would be an interesting one because we have a big segment of members who do a lot of the line two functional work as an external consultant for organisations. They're just not big enough to do that themselves. Yeah. Um, where projects fit in this uh, and uh, the governance of projects and fitting them in with the, with the framework. Um, and... Uh, and I guess going back around to, you know, again, that um, understanding of a value add, how in line two are you demonstrating or reporting your performance versus line one? You know, some organisations, the line two doesn't do any of that, and that's obviously missing. Line one's being asked to do a whole lot of reporting and demonstrating that they're complying, and line two isn't asked to demonstrate that they're meeting any objectives whatsoever because probably because other people in the organisation don't understand what their objectives are. Because if line one's got to do the complying, what are the objectives for line two, you know, is a question that they might ask. So lots and lots and lots of work coming out there. And we've got to distill that down to three or four things that we focus on for the year. And um, 
And, you know, maybe maybe these are things that we take forward into other years, but I think that these are all valuable things that members uh, can make use of at a later date. But certainly I'd encourage any alumni who haven't been able to participate in any of these groups and other members um, with, with the ones that they can participate in. The conversation itself is incredibly valuable. Uh, finding out what questions other people are even asking tells you what you don't know that you don't know, kind yeah. of that, that old model, and, and it's very, very valuable. Um, but it intersects with the assurance piece. We're doing, uh, we'll be running the exact same kind of work with our reporting lines group um, to really tease that out as a valuable tool. Um, that's That piece of research on reporting lines is also something we're taking to the International Federation as well and inviting other associations to participate in that um, and get a real feel for how are other people doing it in other countries, what are they finding are the strengths and weaknesses of any particular model. So it's not about saying one model's better than another in terms of reporting lines either. It'll be about, well, where are your key risks in this? Because at the end of the day, the governance of the information flow through to the board is absolutely critical. And... That is probably the most obvious risk with a reporting line where there is a weakest link um, after compliance. Let's go of the information to try and get it up to the director. Um, and then there are nasty surprises for your leadership team because they didn't get the information or they didn't understand the information and, and compliance didn't have access to them to explain it. Um, and they can't make the decisions that they need to make. Um, so, yeah, lo lots and lots of valuable work that's really, really dependent on our members uh, participating and giving us their ideas and telling us how it's working in the real world, world for them. So, yeah, you talked about taking it to the International Federation. Just for our listeners who may not know, um, that is the International Federation of Compliance Associations. So just if guys, you'll see in some of our documentation. Yeah. Yeah, and with its 12, 12 associations, including GRCI, um, a, all operating with compliance professionals in their home countries with their particular regulatory regimes and all trying to solve the exact same problems and all um, implementing pretty much the same tools that, that we're implementing here, um, just with greater or lesser success depending on their environments. Excellent. I think we've, we've ticked all the, the topics off for today's <laughs> podcast, um, CP350 Consumer Remediation. Um, I will repost the link um, in the podcast notes if you want to have a read of the submission. I will also repost a link to the paper, the workshopped paper that was released on the first day of the conference, uh, the three yes. lines of accountability. If you want to read of that, I will have a bit of a search to see if I can find the original article that Anna Dunsler wrote many years ago as well on the three lines as well. If you're interested in having a sent, I think it was in the journal, so a slightly more academic, a, a longer piece, but an interesting discussion about why it's not called the three lines of assurance and why it's not called the three lines of anything else as well. Um, yeah. And the problems yeah. of the three lines of defense as, as, a, as a term in and of itself. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, that, that was a big one for me. But as we slowly evolve that out of usage with our members, I think that that's, um, that in itself adds clarity to the model. But that's a whole other piece. Read the original article and then you'll <laughs> understand why we've changed the name. <laughs>
Uh, well, as we always do at the end of any podcast, um, any words of wisdom, bit of advice, or anything you see happening, anything you want to share with our members to help them be better risk and compliance professionals? Words of wisdom, that's an interesting one. Um, I, one thing that I'll flag early in the piece, and if members are interested in progressing this a little bit further, what we are seeing with some of our students coming through are some really interesting and deep questions about the process of risk assessments and risk management of compliance obligations in particular. Um, so what is a relatively simple exercise for some risks out there in the world is incredibly complicated for compliance risks. And we're getting some really interesting questions from our students coming through, which has sort of prompted the thought that um, it's it's not as though we have to rethink the, the, the way it's all done, but I think there needs to be a, a bit more meat on the bone for compliance professionals to be able to, again, feed through reports in a meaningful way because shoehorning your compliance risks into a heat map is not serving a lot of organisations very well and is making some of those risks meaningless once you get up to a top level. So we need to look at maybe adapting that model and that's a piece of work that we've got on the potential to-do list when we get to all the other things on the to-do list. So if members are interested in that discussion, reach out. That would be great. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning, Naomi, and stay dry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good luck with that, everyone on the Eastern Seaboard. And hi, Perth members, staying dry over there. <laughs> Thanks, Kwame. Take care, everyone. This podcast was a production of the Governance Risk and Compliance Institute, and the music was produced by Rob Neary.